Welcome to Season 4 of American Political History, 1676, Tobacco. The alacrity at which tobacco conquered the world is simply astounding. Within a hundred years of the discovery of the New World, before the English had a chance to settle North America, tobacco had found its way around the world. The Spanish preferred cigars, the Portuguese and the English pipes, even the Chinese smoked regularly. Long had tobacco been cultivated in the New World. It was woven into the culture there, a part of religious and societal ceremony. The phrase peace pipe comes from the New World sharing of tobacco, signifying a willingness for conversations over resolution on the battlefield. By 1573, it was observed by an English gentleman that every lady in Elizabethan court smoked tobacco pipes. In a world where medicine was the apothecary, potions, tonics, and herbal remedies, tobacco was quickly a staple ingredient in London before the English ever even knew where America was at. In 1605, there was a public debate at Oxford University where anti-tobacco forces argued that tobacco was damaging to the user. They presented blackened lungs of dead smokers as evidence. Ironic that these points would still be debated up until the 1960s in America. King James himself hated tobacco, the use of it, the smell of it. He wrote the counterblast to tobacco, where he called tobacco a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, dangerous to the lungs, and in the black stinking fume thereof nearest resembles the horrid Stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. The king's personal condemnation of tobacco had no effect on the English public. So the king did the next best thing. A ruler can do in the face of such public determination of a habit. He heavily taxed it. John Rolfe, as we discussed before, in the 16-teens developed the first strand of tobacco that could be readily grown in Virginia, changing Virginia and American history forever. By 1618, Jamestown exported around 20,000 pounds of tobacco. Five years later, that had tripled to 60,000 pounds. Five years after that, in 1628, Jamestown exported 500,000 pounds of tobacco. And two years after that, in 1630, Jamestown exported over a million pounds of tobacco. Tobacco was making Jamestown profitable. Tobacco was Jamestown. The Virginia Plantation what they called colonies back then, was a single commodity crop economy. Spreading out over vast areas, many of the counties would have to pass ordinances to make farmers grow some foodstuffs of their own besides tobacco, which you can't eat. Everything was about tobacco in Virginia. One could pay your taxes in tobacco, and soon enough, one had to pay your taxes in tobacco. To receive the best prices for any goods in the markets there, services, salaries, even the church's preferred payment for their services was in tobacco. This growth of tobacco didn't make Virginia instantly wealthy, or even close to the wealthiest plantation in the Americas. It just meant they could grow something that made them money. The Caribbean plantations were the rock stars of the European economy. This is why there was almost constant naval pirating and war in the Caribbean, while the American colonies were left mostly unharmed by European warships. Why would you go pirate a poor, middling colony when you could target the ones that held gold, silver, and sugar? Even by the 1660s, 
sugar was still worth three times as much by weight as tobacco. And opposed to popular thought today, the Caribbean was the important plantations of the 17th century. North America and Virginia were considered the backwaters, whose lack of minerals and commodities and other valuables had disappointed many European investors who had hoped for easy money in a new Caribbean. But this afterthought, Cash crop status didn't stop Jamestown from utilizing tobacco for their success. If one didn't have money or connections to get into the Caribbean economy, then, you know, Virginia was the next best thing you could do. In 1633, King Charles permitted the domestic production of tobacco, opening legal investment into businesses and plantations that produced tobacco in the English world. This was when King Charles was fighting with Parliament before the Civil War over taxation. A new source of money, even if temporary, allowed him to avoid a confrontation of summoning a new Parliament. Tobacco was quickly viewed as a great new tax revenue for the crown, and an even better commodity because it was something that could be exported into foreign countries in exchange for their hard currencies, something England and the crown desperately needed. The English exporting of tobacco was also helped by the Spanish monarch who, for moral reasons, limited tobacco growing within the Spanish Empire, raising special burdensome taxes to supposedly prevent its use. Also, Virginia, with the aid of English merchants, would standardize qualities and quantities of all tobacco produced in the English Empire. We rarely stop and think about standardization of quality today. We're in a world in the shadow of the Industrial Revolution where you click on Amazon and your product's on your porch. But in the 17th century, quality varied tremendously. Tobacco could be extra strength or no strength. It could be cut with brush and fillers and be a poor purchase. The commodity world of the 17th century was a wild west of quality and consistency. If you purchased a barrel of tobacco 2,000 miles away, well, who knows what you're going to get. This slows down trade. It makes it only based on relationships. If you personally know the plantation owner, then you know you'll get the goods. Otherwise, if you don't know them, it's just a gamble every time. Virginia's setting of exacting standards of quality and quantity, Virginia Tobacco, developed a product reputation, a brand which came with legal requirements. But more importantly, the consumer could expect a certain level of quality every time they purchased. This allowed London merchants to be comfortable enough to purchase tobacco 2,000 miles away, cutting out the middlemen holding firms in the supply chain. Not only would Virginia plantations be able to receive advanced payment for their tobacco without personal inspection each time, it also allowed capital investment markets to invest in new plantations for tobacco before things were ever even put in the ground. The Virginia Investment Opportunities also coincided with two powerful forces. First was that in English law, only the eldest son could inherit the father's land, and he must inherit 100% of that land. This meant that the English had a lot of second sons. Second son was a phrase at the time which meant any son after the eldest who could not legally stand to inherit land in England. Daughters normally got married off to try to make their father's estates larger and create political ties. Some unmarried and stigmatized for their unmarried status would occasionally find their way to the New World, too. The opportunities for land in the New World was so attractive to these people. 
You must remember, the upper classes of English were landed gentry. No land, no true upper class social status. The American colonies were the only chance at gentry status for the second sons of England. The next factor was the English Civil War. Families which were in disfavor or trying to diversify against the tumultuous times decided to have parts of their families establish estates for themselves in the New World, far from the reach of London politics, and an option for escape if things took a turn for the worst. Since many of the gentry didn't care for the zealotry of the New England way and wished to make money for themselves, much of this investment went to Virginia, a royal plantation which would assuredly defend their rights as gentlemen, i.e. their rights as investors of the Virginia Company and their rights of their land ownership. In the 1640s through 1660s, many of the famous Virginian families would establish themselves. The Brands, Burrs, Birds, Diggs, Masons, Lees, Carters, Beverleys, Rudolphs, Pages, Ludwells, Washingtons, and Fitzhughes. These families started with capital, to invest in Virginia, and that is, if they hadn't already invested in the original company charter. Although I did mention to you before that the Virginia Company itself was disbanded in 1625 after the shocking opening of the Second Powhatan War, which resulted in the installment of a royal governor and the dissolution of their company charter, royal governors know where their bread is buttered, and honored the land grants that were part of these charters given to gentry families in England. But for others, who were not part of the top few percent of society to be considered gentry or a potential gentry, the immigration of these elites into Virginia pushed those families that had cleared and developed Virginia further and further into the geographic edges of the colony. The now freed indentured servants, that is the few who survived through the experience, would be granted their lands as part of their payment on the edges of English civilization amongst and around the native lands. On this frontier, most of the best-growing lands were reserved by the governors who proclaimed the lands for friendly Indians, not settlers. Resentments grew and disputes often erupted on the frontier. These disputes happened to the irritation of the elites of Virginia, for they had already settled themselves in the prime, central locations of the plantation and made a lot of money off of trade with natives, so they had no interest in instability and hostility with native nations. But before we get into the war between the English frontier and the English elites in Virginia, we cannot forget those that had no choice in immigrating to Virginia. Algonquian and Iroquois cultures had long had slavery, but it had not experienced the economic pull of an enormous and insatiable market for slaves. And from this, some nations would be the prey and some would be predators. The Westos would become rich, attacking and hunting other weaker nations to accumulate slaves to be sold to the English slave markets. This economic pull for labor was because the most demanded resource in growing tobacco was labor. In the 1650s, Virginia's growth exploded, growing from a population around 15,000, to 40,000 by 1660. This growth was not primarily free-flowing, willing immigration. It was mostly forced labor, at first primarily from English, Irish, and Scottish indentured servants. As those sources of labor dried up and became more expensive, Virginia turned to purchasing native slaves to fill their plantations. African slaves at this point was a luxury item, which only the very 
very richest of Virginia could afford a few of. African slaves were but a few dozen in North American colonies at this time, though the trade had developed in the richer Caribbean nations foreshadowing the future of Virginia. Of the 100,000 that are known to have immigrated to the American plantations in the 17th century, it is estimated that 80% of them had no choice. They were indentured servants, press-ganged, vagrants, orphans, idle persons, war prisoners, all of which had been sold to Virginia's plantations to fill their need for growing tobacco. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.